Welcome to How to Save a Planet. I'm Dr. Ayana Elizabeth Johnson. And I'm Alex Bloomberg. And this is the show where we talk about what we need to do to address climate change and how to make those things happen. You've been in uh, running around in climate circles much longer than I have. Since approximately 1998, when I started college as a major in environmental science and public policy. Right. Yes. Right. I'm I'm a newbie. Yeah. A dilettante. New kid on the block. Compared to you. Wait, do you have like new kid on the block level dance moves? Can you choreograph <laughs> a boy band dance to uh <laughs> to the How to Save a Planet theme song? I haven't told anybody on the team yet, but... Um, oh, I'm so excited for whatever you're about to say. Have you ever heard of a little dance called The Running Man? <laughs> <laughs> I'm really concerned that you're going to pretend you invented it. <laughs> no! <laughs> but I do know how to do it. Wait, is this like your secret superpower that you can help use to help save the, cl- the climate? Are you good uh, at no, it? Do you want me to do it, though? Ready? i do it on Zoom, if you want. Do I want... Yes, I want. Okay, here we go. Are we recording this, Lauren? I'm not going to look at you, though, because it'll be too embarrassing. Recording in progress. <laughs> <laughs> this meeting is being ready. recorded. If somebody could hum paid in full for me, please. Uh, okay, I'm ready? so ready. <laughs> this is so good. For those who didn't have the pleasure of seeing that, I should tell you that he started by giving us a side view of the running man, and then he actually, like, rotated it in a circle, and there was some, like, jump rope-style arm moves involved. Very good. Straight out of 1991. Now that I did that, I'm going to, like, spin this into, like, an intro for the show. Perfect. Because, uh... Because you're an audio professional. Here we go. That's right. On the fly. In this episode, we're also going back in time, mm-hmm. not quite as far back as, as I went with The Running I Man. I see what you did here. Um, we're going back to the mid-2000s and to this relatively unknown Supreme Court case. Unless you're like a climate dork. Unless you're a climate dork, in which case it's a case that everybody knows. Yeah. And it's a case that's become sort of shorthand for how we think about who has the authority to deal with climate change within the federal government, right? Like what power right. does the EPA even really have? And it has been a case with like pretty profound consequences mm-hmm. for sort of like the climate policy in the United States for the last couple of decades. And the story of how this case came to be is gripping, actually. It's wild. I, um, yeah. I, you know, like as a college nerd majoring in environmental science and public policy, uh-huh. um, I certainly heard about this case as something, but I also like wasn't a great student at the time, so I didn't like stick. Mm. I maybe didn't like read the full decision. Right. Um, but, you know, you kind of like hear it all the time. Massachusetts versus EPA, Massachusetts versus EPA, when people are referring to the Environmental Protection Agency and mm-hmm. basically regulating greenhouse gases or not. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, but I had no idea the backstory was this wild. It's like <laughs> truly bananas. So we are going to be bringing you the backstory. Yeah. And when I say we, I mean literally people that are not us. I mean... Um, <laughs> not the How to Save a Planet team. This is uh, an episode from a podcast called Outside In, mm-hmm. um, which is a great podcast out of New Hampshire Public Radio. Yeah. And the host, Sam Evans-Brown, is going to be sharing the incredible, pretty riveting story of Massachusetts versus EBA on today's episode. And it's coming up right after this break. If you don't believe a Supreme Court case in its intimate details can be riveting, think again. Where to start? When does any history start? Clean air and clean water, the wise use of our land, the protection of wildlife and natural beauty. No, too early. I want to call upon all of you to join me in enacting into law 
a new Clean Air Act this year. I don't think here either. We came to Kyoto to find new ways to bridge our differences. The imperative here is to do what we promise rather than to promise what we cannot do. Maybe. We will require all power plants to meet clean air standards in order to reduce emissions of sulfur dioxide, nitrogen oxide, mercury and carbon dioxide, carbon dioxide within a reasonable period of time. Let's start here. It's as good a place as any when you're trying to pick a starting point for a cascade of falling dominoes. This was the largely forgotten moment in the 2000 presidential campaign that George W. Bush said he would regulate greenhouse gas emissions. You might think of Al Gore as the original global warming politician, but in 2000, it actually seemed like it would be his rival, George W. Bush, who would enact the first meaningful regulations of greenhouse gas emissions. Because it was George Bush, not Al Gore in the 2000 election. It was Bush who campaigned with the promise that he'd regulate greenhouse gas emissions from the nation's power plants. Uh, he said that in September uh, of 2000. He, he went to the left of Al Gore on the issue. This is Richard Lazarus, a law professor at Harvard, specializing in environmental law. When George W. Bush won, he signaled to the world just how seriously he was going to take climate change. And he did that by appointing a woman named Christine Todd Whitman as head of the Environmental Protection Agency. She is a strong person. She is plenty capable of taking on this difficult but important assignment. She was governor of New Jersey and a rising star in the Republican Party. Mr. President, I am honored to be asked to serve as the administrator of the Environmental Protection Agency. I thank you There's been no one before or since of the national political stature and clout made head of EPA, no one more than Christine Todd Whitman. She was presidential timber. She was a household name in the United States back then. Teddy Roosevelt, our first conservationist uh, president, once said, I recognize the right and the duty of this generation to develop and use the natural resources of our land, but I do not recognize the right to waste them for the generations that come after us. Most people who are watching this, including environmentalists, thought the Bush administration was going to be sort of the hero of the climate issue. While the EPA isn't usually a jumping-off point for the presidency as far as cabinet positions go, if it were going to be, being the Republican who spearheaded the nation's response to climate change would be a very visible, very politically shrewd move. I have never underestimated the importance of environmental protection, just as I have never overestimated the ease in achieving it. Governor Whitman had been reassured by the White House that, yes, that was part of her mandate. This is Jeff Homestead. He worked in George W. Bush's EPA. Christine Todd Whitman was Jeff's boss. But Jeff was in charge of the branch of the EPA that would have to figure this all out, how to make Bush the hero on the climate issue. Live from Washington, Crossfire. One of the first orders of business for Christine Todd Whitman, just five weeks after inauguration, was a trip to Italy for international climate talks. And before she left, she went on TV. Governor, uh, tonight, as we sit here, the, the environmental conservatives are up in arms. People in the White House were aware of what the president had said, um, and so she felt like when she went on crossfire that she was not going to be getting crosswise with the administration. That He has also been very clear that the science is good on global warming. It does exist. There is a real problem that we as a world face from global warming. And to the extent that introducing CO2 to the discussion is going to have an impact on global warming, that's an important step to take. In terms of, of whether it was, you know, the, the, the appearance on Crossfire that, um, that created the, the, uh, the stir. I think it had actually been started before then. Um, you certainly had uh, people in industry who understood what a big deal this was and how potentially problematic it could be. 
from an economic perspective. And so I think that there had been lobbying going on um, for, for, for months before that. Um, but, but I do think that um, sort of that all came to a head. In response to lobbying from fossil fuel-related industries and to members of Congress from the states where those industries were particularly powerful, the Bush administration crafted a letter. They never consulted Christine Todd Whitman, the rising Republican star who signed on to tackle climate change. And in this letter, they completely disavowed Bush's campaign pledge on greenhouse gases. And it was a big reaction. It was a big reaction. It was a very big reaction. It was a British paper, I think, that said with one stroke of the pen, the president has determined that there are more important things in the world than the rest of the world, basically, that the United States is more important. That's Christine Todd Whitman herself. She declined to be interviewed for this story. But back in 2007, she talked to Frontline. The way it happened was the equivalent to flipping the bird, frankly, to the rest of the world uh, on an issue about which they felt so deeply. This flip essentially ended Christine Todd Whitman's national political career. The Bush administration completely pulled the rug out from under her. They let her go on TV and say one thing, and then while she was in Europe, without consulting her, they did the exact opposite. She left office after a couple years, after repeatedly coming into conflict with the White House. There was no more buzz about her as a possible presidential candidate. I have never underestimated the importance of environmental protection. It's so hard to say when any history starts. Which domino was this decision? Was it the first? Was it just another that fell? At the very least, it's a prologue to a causal chain which once seemed like it would be one of the most important in the history of the planet. And seen in a certain light, it may still be. You know, I mean, it was like, you couldn't write this in Hollywood. I faced enormous pressure to throw in the towel. I don't think we will know the true legacy for years into the future. Telling me the future of the environmental movement was on my head. It's not a position of respect that they're taking. It's a position of intransigence. So then, once it was stayed, boom, everything stopped. The Supreme Court does not hand out cert like candy, but it's entirely reasonable to expect that these issues will come before it for a fifth and potentially final statement in this saga. Today on the show, we're bringing you inside what may be the most important environmental Supreme Court decision in history. It's a story about trying to confront one of the greatest challenges of the 21st century with one of the most celebrated laws of the 20th century. As such, ultimately, it's a story about the power and the limits of the law. The story starts with a little piece of legislation called the Clean Air Act. Okay, we are, I'm recording. That's Ann Carlson, a scholar of the Clean Air Act at the UCLA School of Law. She wrote a book called Lessons from the Clean Air Act. The Clean Air Act was first passed in the 60s, but it didn't really become what it is today until it was amended in 1970. Ann says those amendments were a sea change. They were the first time that public health was put first ahead of the profit of regulated industries. As a law, it's remarkable for a couple of reasons. It's very flexible, but it's also very stringent at the same time. It was written at a time when America was starting to get a little freaked out by how much we could affect the environment. Smog, industrial fumes, sulfur, these invisible pollutants were becoming more and more visible. Well, in 1970, the air quality around the country was terrible. It's hard to describe how bad it was, especially in Los Angeles, but I grew up in Los Angeles, so I was 10 years old in 1970. And for two thirds of the year, we used to have air quality that was so bad that we were supposed to stay indoors. And the people who crafted the law, they wanted to go big. 
They didn't want to handcuff future generations. They didn't know what they didn't know. It said, basically, you need to regulate any pollutant that endangers public health and welfare and that is really common. And it was up to EPA to figure out what those pollutants were. So the air, then the act had to define what is a pollutant. And so it defines it really, really broadly. Under the Clean Air Act, a pollutant is defined as anything that is a danger to human health and welfare. Broad, right? Which brings us to the first big legal question of this story. Are greenhouse gases, like CO2, pollutants? From our perspective in 2020, it might seem like the answer to this is an obvious yes. But legally, this is a debate that had been raging for years before George W. Bush ever had to weigh in on it. I mean, CO2 is a substance we exhale every minute of the day. It's a fundamental part of the composition of our atmosphere. In fact, during the Clinton years, this had been the subject of a high-profile exchange between then-GOP House Majority Whip Tom DeLay and Clinton's EPA administrator, Carol Browner. They're in a hearing, and Tom DeLay essentially asks Carol Browner if the EPA has the authority to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. I think he's expecting her to say no. And she says, yes. And she turns to her counsel and says, you know, we'll, pr we'll produce a memo on that. This memo represented a tantalizing possibility, a plan B. If Congress wasn't willing to pass a specific climate change law, maybe there was a workaround. Maybe the executive branch could just do it all on their own. And more to the point, maybe they had to because there's another historic feature of the Clean Air Act. Congress also says, we're not just going to rely on the Environmental Protection Agency. We are also going to allow uh, citizens to sue if the Environmental Protection Agency isn't doing its job. It was actually the first law to explicitly include a citizen's right to sue. And that's actually one of the ways that we get to Massachusetts versus EPA. Massachusetts versus EPA. The author of that memo, now a law professor at the University of Virginia, later wrote, I'm not suggesting this is Brown versus Board of Education for the Environment, but it may be as close as we will come. I started this story with one row of dominoes, one tumbling column of tiles, the story of the Bush administration dramatically pulling the rug from underneath Christine Todd Whitman. But there's an alternate earlier, parallel place that we might have started this story. And it starts with that memo, written under the Clinton administration. While Clinton's EPA had said, yes, greenhouse gases are pollution under the Clean Air Act, they hadn't done anything about it. For environmentalists, this was really frustrating. At the time, Congress was in the control of Republicans, so passing a new climate change bill was a stretch. But over in the executive branch, they had Al Gore as second-in-command, supposedly this champion for the global warming issue. And then they had a legal opinion that said, we already have the authority to regulate greenhouse gases. We don't need the legislative branch. And yet, no one was taking action. The Environmental Protection Agency was looking at uh, traditional pollutants, but whenever you mention greenhouse gases and regulating those from the tailpipe of a vehicle, uh, the EPA kind of avoided the subject. Joe Mendelson is now senior counsel for Tesla, but once upon a time he was working for a tiny DC-based environmental nonprofit called the Center for Technology Assessment. While the big environmental groups, the National Resources Defense Council, the Environmental Defense Fund, the Sierra Club, didn't want to make trouble because they wanted to help Al Gore win the 2000 election, Joe and his organization wanted to see progress. If everyone believes the authority exists, but no one's willing to take the legal steps to actually implement that authority and actually use it, then what good is it? So he tried to push them. He filed a petition asking the EPA to regulate carbon emissions from the tailpipes of cars. It wasn't a citizen's lawsuit yet, but it was the beginnings of one. At the time, his daughters were one and three years old. You know, raising them as, as very little children, I would sometimes be in their bedroom uh, in, in, a, in a rocking chair, uh, either trying to put them to bed and, and sit with them and, and kind of read over legal work, and including this petition. So it's, uh, yeah, it was in some ways uh, the third child that was born at the time. 
At first, this seemed like it was going to work. The Clinton administration called Joe in for a meeting and told him they were going to use this threat of a lawsuit as a launchpad for their own plans on greenhouse gases. But then Bush was inaugurated president, and the petition was left in limbo. Now, put a pin in Joe Mendelssohn, laboring in obscurity in his nursery. Let's go back to where we did start our story. She is plenty capable of taking on this difficult but important assignment. When the Bush administration dramatically cut the legs out from under its high-profile pick to run the EPA, New Jersey Governor Christine Todd Whitman. The way it happened was the equivalent to flipping the bird, frankly. We started there because it was that decision that got Jim Milkey's attention. It was a fairly dramatic moment because it became clear at that point that the federal government, at least voluntarily, was simply not going to do anything and was taking itself out of the game. While today he's a judge on the Massachusetts Court of Appeals, back in the year 2001, Jim Milkey was taking a year off as a lawyer with the Environmental Department of the Massachusetts Attorney General's office. He was in Denmark with his family, gaining a very European perspective on climate change. I did make a decision that when I came back, which was July of 2001, uh, I would do everything in my power to try to carve out a state role uh, in this area. How could a little state like Massachusetts take on a global challenge like climate change? The answer is litigation to force the federal government to take action. Our job was to sue people and to defend state officials when they got sued. Uh, there's an old expression that if your only uh, tool is a hammer, every problem starts to look like a nail. And we had to develop uh, our nail and our hammer. Milky and a small crew of lawyers from other like-minded states got to work crafting their own legal argument to force the Bush administration to act on climate. In the meantime, entirely separately, Joe Mendelson had sued to demand a response to his petition demanding the regulation of greenhouse gases from cars and had been told, yes, we'll give you your response. I remember walking through a snowstorm to get some chocolate milk for our kids when uh, David Bookbinder and I were on the call with EPA saying, okay, here's what the settlement's going to look like. In response, the EPA put out a document, again, disavowing any federal role in regulating CO2, and it had a whole host of explanations for why. It said the science of climate change was still uncertain. It said the Department of Transportation already regulated fuel economy standards. It said if it stepped in, it might mess up ongoing international climate talks. It said it didn't have the authority to use the Clean Air Act to regulate greenhouse gas emissions. And even if it did, the Clean Air Act didn't say it had to regulate pollution, only that it could. In all, there were seven reasons why not. In short, they threw everything and the kitchen sink at Joe's petition. And this is where Jim Milkey, who had a hammer, found his nail. Jim and Joe decided to join forces to combine their hitherto-four separate efforts into one. It is here that our two rows of dominoes merge into one. We anticipated what their precise response was going to be. So as soon as the EPA issued their reply, and I believe it was August 28, 2003, Joe and Jim were ready. We were able to go to the other states and say, this is what we are doing. Do you want to join us? All in all, 12 states and 30 environmental groups including Joe Mendelssohn's, all joined together on one case, which, because Jim filed first, was called... Massachusetts, Massachusetts versus, versus, Massachusetts versus, versus EPA. EPA. Massachusetts versus EPA. The lawsuit demanded the EPA recognize excessive carbon dioxide emissions as pollution, it was based on the Clean Air Act, which, written in 1970, never really contemplated a problem so wicked as climate change, but which had this very flexible definition of pollution, anything that endangers human health or welfare. Based on that definition, and on the U.S. government's own climate science, it argued that CO2 must be considered pollution. What began as a document written alone in Joe Mendelssohn's daughter's nursery grew into a jangly, somewhat dysfunctional coalition of 50 lawyers from states and from environmental groups. 
you say, how do you manage that? Uh, part of the answer is it cannot be managed. This wobbly team of environmental advocates struggled to get out of their own way. We didn't always see eye to eye, uh, nor did we always get along. And by far, and I, I mean this quite sincerely, the hardest part of the case was dealing with our own side. And, or as I like to say, of the seven or eight lawyers who were sort of at the core of this, uh, many of them had personalities as difficult and egos as big as my own. They had very strong, vehement disagreements. And those disagreements became destructive and almost unraveled their case. Harvard's Richard Lazarus again, whose book, The Rule of Five, Making Climate History at the Supreme Court, is a detailed accounting of this lawsuit. The first step was the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals. It took two years from when the case was announced to when they received their decision. Two years of herding 50 cats with egos, corralling them to agree on the structure and strategy of their briefs. And when the decision came out, they had lost. When the D.C. Circuit ruled, uh, it was in a sense neither a victory nor a defeat because the three-judge panel split in three different directions. And out of that split decision came a new risk, standing, the right of a plaintiff to bring a lawsuit. The standing issues were quite serious. Standing, when it comes to the harms wrought by climate change, is the second big legal question that this case would eventually decide. Traditionally, standing law demands immediate, particularized injury. Whoever brings a lawsuit, whether it's a person or a state, needs to prove they are connected to and explicitly harmed by the action or lack of action challenged in the case. Essentially, they needed to prove that global warming is bad and prove that it was being made demonstrably worse by the EPA sitting on its hands. That every ton of carbon emitted was causing a little more and a little more and a little more harm. Compare that to what people perceived to be the nature of global warming. Uh, which is long-term, incremental, hard to pinpoint to any particular place. In the mid-2000s, just 15 short years ago, for many, climate change was still perceived as a problem that was far off, with impacts happening 30, 50, 100 years hence. And before then, everything's just the same. As if a pot of water suddenly leaps from cold to boiling and never gets hot enough to burn you in the interim. One judge thought we had standing. Uh, one of the three judges assumed we had standing and ruled against us on other grounds. And the third judge said essentially, um, global warming is so pervasive, if it's true, that no one has standing. If that one judge of three were right, it would have long-lasting effects on the ability of anyone to bring a climate change lawsuit under the Clean Air Act. And the fact that that one judge had ruled based on standing and standing alone meant that if they appealed, this question would be central once they reached the Supreme Court. There was a lot at stake. I faced enormous pressure uh, from the environmental groups to throw in the towel at that point. And there, the head of NRDC was calling me from New York, telling me things like the future of the environmental movement was on my head. Think about it. Their lawyers would have to stand up in front of the Supreme Court justices and make the case that global warming is real, that the pervasive, worldwide, slow burn that our climate impacts are manifesting now, that states are being harmed now, and that you could blame the EPA for at least part of it. But what if they lost? Here's what could happen. It could be the end of Plan B. The executive branch could never use the Clean Air Act to regulate CO2, no matter who was in the White House. But also, a precedent could be set. Depending on the exact wording of the decision, states and individuals would find it harder to sue the federal government over the damages incurred by climate change. They might even lose the right to do so. It could be a crippling blow. And uh, it was, it got, extremely heated and uh, difficult. So there was immense pressure to quit while they were ahead, cut their losses, wait for a better opportunity, a better case. But Jim Milkey wanted to keep going. 
if we're afraid to bring the case because we might lose, we've already lost. He thought, we're already there. The Bush administration already is dead set against using the Clean Air Act to regulate CO2. First, they asked for a rehearing and were told no. So they decided to go all the way to the top. Jim drafted an appeal to the Supreme Court asking them to review the case. These petitions are not easy to craft. After all, there are thousands of them every year, and only a select few are chosen for review. You've got to get the court's attention. You've got to prove something in the lower courts went wrong. So Jim wrote his appeal and floated it to the ragtag band of lawyers and environmentalists the case had tenuously cobbled together. And Jim's draft was the one time we, there was consensus among all the states and environmentalists. And that's when Jim's draft was terrible. The last-ditch effort to save what might be the most significant environmental lawsuit in history after a break. Welcome back. Today we're featuring an episode from the podcast Outside In about the landmark Supreme Court case known as Massachusetts versus EPA. So we left off before the break with lawyer Jim Milkey drafting an appeal to the Supreme Court. His goal? Convince the court to take a case that would challenge the EPA's decision not to regulate greenhouse gases under the Clean Air Act. And to be clear, the Supreme Court had never done this, had never accepted an appeal by environmental groups calling into question a decision in favor of the EPA. The Supreme Court had always given what is called deference to the EPA's federal decisions. So when they got the chance to appeal, Milky and his team knew they needed to write something really, really convincing. All right. So here we are, back to Outside In and host Sam Evans-Brown. When Jim Milkey first drafted his appeal to the Supreme Court, asking them to review their case against the EPA, he made his argument based on CO2 as pollution. It was technical, internationally focused, science-based, which is fine if your audience is donors to environmental groups. It struck me that this Supreme Court wasn't necessarily, even in those days, that interested in environmental protection or in international law. This is where Lisa Heinzerling enters our story. Lisa is a professor at the Georgetown University Law Center. But before that, she served in the Obama administration as a climate advisor and had been a clerk for Supreme Court Justice William Brennan. And between all of that, she had spent three years at the Massachusetts Attorney General's office. And at that time, uh, Jim Milkey was uh, effectively my boss. And so we got to know each other very well. We're friends. And um, he liked the way I wrote briefs. After Milkey's first stab at the appeal was generally panned by his colleagues, he enlisted Lisa. He understood that she knew how to craft an argument that could get the Supreme Court's attention. The enormity of this job is a little hard to overstate. The EPA was created in 1970. When Lisa Heinzerling took over writing the briefs for Massachusetts versus EPA, it was 2006. According to Richard Lazarus, in that time span, the Supreme Court had never taken a case when an environmental group had lost to the EPA in lower court. Never. Heinzerling refocused the whole case on the reasons that the EPA had given for denying Joe Mendelssohn's petition, the EPA's error, she calls it. And that error was to allow the EPA simply to say, you know, I just don't want to do this at this time. We are not interested in taking on climate change. If you remember, in their response, the EPA listed seven reasons why they said no to this petition. The kitchen sink. Almost seemingly random list of reasons why it didn't want to regulate. Among the seven reasons the EPA gave for why they wouldn't regulate carbon, they had listed one that was generally understood to be true. Congress may have passed the Clean Air Act, but the EPA gets to decide how and when to enforce it. This is called their discretion. The EPA can put off regulation as long as it makes sense. But then there was all this other stuff. Six other reasons, some of which sounded a lot more political in nature. So even if the statute were perfectly clear that EPA could regulate, had EPA adequately explained why it would not, 
And this was where Lisa Heinzerling found inspiration in a story from 1853, written by Herman Melville. I even opened the new version of the cert petition with a quote from Bartleby the Scrivener, who famously says when asked to perform his job, I would prefer not to. In this story, Bartleby, a copyist, starts passively refusing to do work. So Lisa's trick here was to reframe a case that really the environmental movement wanted to be about climate change and make it a case about something which is catnip to the justices of the Supreme Court, separation of powers. The basic legal error was a quite fundamental error of administrative law. In the Clean Air Act, Congress told the EPA it had to regulate air pollution. It said you've got discretion in how to do it, but how much discretion? Unlimited discretion? I would prefer not to. Can it give a list that includes a bunch of political considerations as reasons not to act? Like, hey, we don't want to screw up the president's strategy at international climate talks. Isn't that tantamount to saying the president can ignore Congress? This reframing to focus on the balance of power between the three branches of government is what Lisa Heinzerling, who had worked for Supreme Court justice and had seen what makes them decide to take a case, brought to the appeal. Each year, only 0.1 or 0.2% of the petitions that are written wind up being taken by the Supreme Court. But in June of 2005, Lisa's petition was accepted. The first time ever that the Supreme Court had taken an appeal by environmental groups challenging a decision in favor of the EPA. They're just human people, and they have their priors and their own idiosyncrasies and preferences about styles of argument. And so, yeah, I think a, a, a argument at this level, even a legal argument at this level, is um, an exercise in a kind of creativity that most people wouldn't uh, expect. And so they had their three hurdles, three things they had to convince the Supreme Court were true. First, that greenhouse gases be considered pollution under a law that didn't have climate change in mind when it was written. It said, basically, you need to regulate any pollutant that endangers public health and welfare and that is really common. Second, the state of Massachusetts was being caused harm by the decision of the EPA not to do anything about that pollution. Immediate, particularized injury. And lastly, when the EPA decided to do nothing about that pollution, they made the choice for the wrong reasons. A quite fundamental error of administrative law. We'll hear argument first today in 05-1120, Massachusetts versus Environmental Protection Agency. Mr. Milkey. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the court. If I may, I'd like argument to day, the, uh, the Olympics the of lawyering. You're you're very close. Uh, you know, you're sitting down there up on a uh, up on the the, the dais, uh, and um, they have very nice chairs that they can lean back in and kind of spin a little bit around. It is, Your Honor. We have shown that the sea levels are already occurring from the current amounts of greenhouse gases in the air, uh, and that means it's only going to get worse as uh, Well, uh, when? I mean, when, when, when is the uh, predicted uh, cataclysm? Uh, Your Honor, it's, it's not so much a cataclysm as ongoing harm. It's a, uh, the harm does not suddenly spring up in the year 2100. It plays out continuously. At one point, during the oral argument, uh, one of the justices asked a question, a little bit of spittle came out of his mouth and landed on my paper. Um, <laughs> and, um, about whether, uh, I, I gather that there is something of a consensus on warming, but not a consensus on how much of that is attributable to human activity. Antonin Scalia was the first justice to ask questions, and they weren't friendly questions. And I gather that, uh, uh, what, what is it, something like 7% of the uh, total uh, carbon dioxide emissions are attributable to automobiles in the United States? I have a bad habit that, you know, I, 
I have a need to correct people. <laughs> it's actually, it is about 6%, Your Honor. 6%. Thank you, Your Honor. All the uh, books on Supreme Court practice say never, ever correct a Supreme Court justice unless it's really important. And, and frankly, I think I shocked him at that time because it was uh, I was correcting him against our interest, and he realized that he, you know, he was facing someone who was not trying to pull the wool over his eyes. Only new cars would be affected, right? So, uh, so even the reduction of the six percent would uh, would would uh, would take a few years, wouldn't it? It would take a few years, Your Honor, but it is a basic premise of the Clean Air Act that vehicle fleets regularly turn over. The amazing thing that happened that morning was that Jim Milkey tamed Justice Scalia. Uh, Your Your Honor, we we have shown on the record that a 40 percent reduction in carbon dioxide uh, from cars is currently feasible. And since those emissions account for... Well, not, not in the first year. Not no, no, we, we agree, Your Honor. I mean, ultimately, when... As uh, skilled when the as Justice was, on the road as tough and insightful as his questions were, Jim Milkey handled them one at a time. Uh, he handled them uh, just perfectly. I mean, uh, is that how it works? I'm, I'm we not don't a scientist, but I'd be surprised if it was so... Uh, uh, so rigid. Your Honor, I don't believe it's established as necessarily a straight line, but I, I want to emphasize that small vertical rises uh, cause a large loss of horizontal land. For example, where the slope is less than 2 percent, which is true of much of the Massachusetts coastline, um, every foot rise will, will um, create a loss of, of more than 50 feet of horizontal land. And it became clear uh, that Jim had the upper hand. Your assertion is that after the pollutant leaves the air and goes up into the stratosphere, it is it is uh, contributing to global warming. Uh, re- respectfully, Your Honor, it's not the stratosphere. It's the troposphere. Troposphere, is, whatever. Um, which, I told you before I'm not a scientist. Uh, that's, that's why I don't want to have to deal with global warming, well, to tell you the truth. Under the express words of the statute, and this is 302G, for something to be in here. would, months later, become clear was the crucial question came during the questioning of the lawyer for the EPA. And it came not from Justice Scalia, but from Justice Stephen Breyer. And it was almost straight from Lisa's brief. Now, their claim in respect to that is at least three of the four considerations are not proper things for the agency to take into account. Namely, whether the president wants to do something different, whether we're running foreign policy properly, whether cooperation with other countries are relevant to this particular issue. So what they've asked us to do is send it back so they can get the right reasons. Now, if they want not to do it, what's your response to that? Justice Breyer, I I don't think that it depends on how many pages in the agency. What Breyer is asking here is a little confusing, so let me break it down. He's saying that when the EPA threw the kitchen sink at Joe Mendelssohn's first petition, giving all sorts of reasons why they couldn't regulate carbon, they made the mistake of adding an S. They said in light of these considerations. They implied that all of those reasons should be taken and understood as a group, both the legitimate ones, like EPA's broad discretionary powers, and the illegitimate ones, which... Isn't it kind of amazing to think the fate of a decision this large, the future of climate policy in the United States, resting on a single letter? That's what you hear that the EPA's lawyer, whose name is Gregory Garr, isn't getting. Petitioners acknowledge that that was an appropriate consideration for the agency. So even if you think the other considerations were inappropriate... And we certainly do not. But even if you think they are, the agency gave an appropriate reason. And that reason was supported. When I write an opinion, sometimes I write the words, we decide this matter in light of the following three factors taken together. And I guess a lawyer who said, one of those factors alone the court has held justify the result all by itself In saying the court has held that, I guess that wouldn't be so. That would be a bad lawyer, wouldn't it? Uh, Your Honor. They write that all of these considerations justify our result, again, 
one of them by themselves, it sounds, they think would not have been sufficient. I, I don't think that that is a fair reading. There really wasn't much press coverage until the court finally ruled on April 2nd of, of the next year, uh, 2007. If you haven't deduced this already, the EPA lost. The states and the environmental groups won. The four justices appointed by Democrats had been joined by Justice Kennedy as the swing vote. And if you read the decision, the ultimate reason they won is very narrow. The judges did say that greenhouse gases seemed to meet the EPA's definition of pollution. They did say that Massachusetts was suffering harm because of climate change. But all they said was that the EPA had to go back and apply proper legal reasons if they were going to decline to regulate. That's all the case in a technical sense did. Uh, notwithstanding that, the coverage of the case uh, was along the lines of Supreme Court declares global warming real, rebukes Bush administration, orders solution be found. Which, in a technical sense, is quite inaccurate, but has some truth to it in a larger sense. Despite that very narrow ask, and really the very narrow technical meaning of the opinion, its language is grandiose. The majority opinion uh, by Justice Stevens wanted none of that <laughs> and, and started out saying, uh, respected scientists say, and then includes a list, a long list, of all the anticipated harms uh, from climate change. And so in a larger sense, this was the court putting its imprimatur on the problem. The ruling cleared the way for the EPA, responding to the sole direction of the president without any action by Congress to use the Clean Air Act to regulate the emission of greenhouse gases. The fallout from that decision meant that, after a few years, not only could the agency regulate carbon, they would be required to. Which is why, even today, the Trump administration is crafting new regulations, new rules, ostensibly to limit greenhouse gas emissions. The Trump administration has adopted this program that really is designed to establish the limits of what EPA's regulatory authority is under the Clean Air Act. But the Clean Air Act um, I would not say that it's that it's run its course or, or met its match. In other words, Massachusetts is not the final word on this subject. I noted at the beginning that the lawyer who wrote the original legal opinion that suggested the Clean Air Act could be used to regulate carbon dioxide said that Massachusetts versus EPA was the closest we'll come to a Brown versus Board of Education for the Environment. One decision declared segregation in public schools unconstitutional. The other strongly suggests the federal government has to fight climate change. Both big statements. Statements that feel landmark, like nation-changing decisions. But let's follow that comparison. Thank you, George Sam. Uh, everybody, uh, please be seated. And uh, my first announcement today is that uh, you should all take off your jackets. Uh, I'm going to do the same. We got. It's not that sexy now. <laughs> During Barack Obama's presidency, Congress took a stab at Plan A, passing a big, sweeping climate change law. It was called Waxman Markey, and it was a cap and trade bill, and it went down in flames. So the Obama administration took Plan B using executive authority to regulate greenhouse gases using the Clean Air Act, as Massachusetts versus EPA said they could, and ran with it. Because the decisions that we make now uh, and in the years ahead will have a profound impact on the world that all of you inherit. They wrote something called an endangerment finding that officially declared six key greenhouse gases pollution. 
They use that finding to craft new fuel efficiency standards for cars and trucks, regulations on new power plants that burn coal and natural gas. The question now is whether we will have the courage to act before it's too late. And finally, in 2013, as a president, as a father, and as an American, I'm here to say we need to act. A sweeping and politically risky plan to use the Clean Air Act to reduce carbon emissions from existing U.S. power plants, called the Clean Power Plan. With all of this in their pocket, the Obama administration went... Mr. Secretary General, Monsieur le Président de la France... To Paris, to the United Nations, and in 2016... When 196 nations simultaneously said a resounding yes, we will do our part, we will live up to our responsibility to future generations. The U.S. commitment to the Paris Accords was based almost entirely on the authority affirmed in Massachusetts versus EPA. And so, in a very concrete way, this history, which, insofar as any history has a beginning, started in Joe Mendelssohn's nursery. Yeah, it was in some ways uh, the third child that was born at the time. Ended here. And that is why our gathering today is, in fact, historic. The United States looks forward to formally joining this agreement this year, and we call on all of our international partners to do so. Except, of course, history doesn't have an end. Because if the U.S. Supreme Court told the federal government that CO2 should be considered a pollutant in 2007, why isn't that happening? How is it that we're not hearing all about this new wave of citizen lawsuits designed to force the federal government to comply with Massachusetts versus EPA to regulate greenhouse gas emissions? Well, for one, those lawsuits are happening. But the reason they don't get more attention is because... Litigation is not legislation. Interpreting policy is not as powerful as making it. If you think back to Brown versus Board of Education, that landmark 1954 decision led to some progress. But the court didn't specify how to desegregate, which opened the door to differing interpretations and evasions of the ruling on state and local levels. In Massachusetts versus EPA, the court said greenhouse gases are pollution, but it didn't specify how to reduce that pollution. And the how may be the Achilles heel of the ruling. Massachusetts versus EPA relies on the Clean Air Act, a law that is 50 years old as of this year, to deal with a challenge it wasn't imagined to combat. And that makes it extremely vulnerable to legal challenges. Two examples of this. The first weakness. While the definition of pollution in the Clean Air Act is extremely broad because the authors wanted it to be flexible, anything that is a danger to human health and welfare, it's obvious the law was written with certain pollutants in mind when you look at the thresholds that trigger regulation. The amount of pollution that triggers permitting and review um, has been set in the Clean Air Act at either 100 tons per year or 250 tons per year. That's Janet McCabe. She was the Obama administration EPA official who was the primary architect of the Clean Power Plan. In the 1970s, the authors of the Clean Air Act wanted to focus on large-scale polluters. They said, if you're just out in your yard, gardening, releasing chemicals that create ground-level ozone, you shouldn't need to get a permit. They said, you only need a permit if you're emitting 100 tons or more which is a lot when we're talking about, like, nitrogen oxides, but in carbon dioxide terms. Well, 100 tons of CO2 um, is not much, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> so uh, uh, Perhaps a large kindergarten class might admit. <laughs> yeah, you know, or an apartment building, yeah. right? Yeah. Or, or a boiler at a mall, or, right? In the United States, the average person emits around 16 tons a year. So if you've got, like, a big family, would you need to get a permit from the federal government? The Clean Air Act couldn't possibly have contemplated that thousands and thousands of new types of 
non-industrial sources would have to get Clean Air Act permits. In their attempt to finagle this, the Obama administration laid out a roadmap. They said, we'll start with the big polluters and we'll work our way down and eventually we'll decide how small of an emitter will be required to get a permit. This proposal landed them back in the Supreme Court in another lawsuit decided in 2014. This case was the unfortunately named UARG versus EPA, which stands for Utility Air Regulatory Group. An ad hoc association founded by the uh, electric utility industry for purposes, among other things, of potentially challenging EPA regulations. UARG! Sorry. The majority of the Supreme Court in UARG said you cannot do that. This is Justin Schwab, who until last year was deputy general counsel in the Trump administration's EPA. In this case, the justices really didn't like this we'll start with the big emitters and figure out the rest later approach. They said, we the Supreme Court are not willing to stand on the dock and wave goodbye to EPA as it engages on a multi-year voyage of discovery and decides what it really wants to do. This was not a huge defeat. They told the EPA to just keep regulating the polluters they already were anyway, the ones who were already getting Clean Air Act permits. But it signaled trouble ahead. And they said in UARG, we will greet it with heightened skepticism, where an agency purports to discover in an obscure or dormant provision of the statute sweeping authority over important parts of the nation's economy. In other words, if all of a sudden a law that has never or rarely been used is invoked in a dramatic new way, the court gets suspicious. This is called the elephants in mouse holes doctrine, which brings us to the second legal weakness. In the Obama administration's regulations for existing power plants, the Clean Power Plan, they wrote the rules as if they were regulating the entire grid. In the 1970 Clean Air Act, there are certain turns of phrase, for example, referring to an existing source of pollution, which at least imply the law was talking about regulating facilities at the individual level, which is what had always been done. The Clean Power Plan radically departed from that tradition and from that implicit interpretation of the limits of the EPA's authority. Again, the climate change strategy of one of the largest greenhouse gas emitting economies in the world coming down to grammar. And it seems that this got them in trouble again. A new coalition of states and industrial groups who did not want to revamp their grids challenged the Clean Power Plan, asked the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals to issue a stay, that is, to stop the Obama administration in its tracks while they challenged the plan in court. The D.C. Circuit Court declined to do that. But in February of 2016, the Supreme Court stepped in. And amazed everybody when they when they issued the stay. And of course, it was all it was right around the time that Justice Scalia, uh, you know, it was one of maybe one of the last things he weighed in on before he d passed away. You know, I mean, it was like you couldn't write this in Hollywood. Um, and so then, once it was stayed, boom, everything stopped. By black letter law and by the Supreme Court's own precedents, in order to issue that stay. The Supreme Court had to determine that there was a likelihood of success on the merits of the challenge. We don't know what aspect of the challenge. The Supreme Court did not give any commentary on its stay. But we know that a majority of the Supreme Court found that there was a likelihood of success on the merits of the challenge against the Clean Power Plan. In other words, they thought something about the Clean Power Plan was illegal. This stay might mean that if a test of Massachusetts versus EPA ever comes before the Supreme Court, they might deal it a blow. They might decide that there is no elephant in this mouse hole, that while greenhouse gases may be pollution under the Clean Air Act, it doesn't have enough power to rein that pollution in. The Trump administration has now put forward their own proposals to regulate emissions. Their coal plant rule, for instance, is called the Affordable Clean Energy Rule, or ACE. Their new car emissions rules are called the Safer Fuel Efficient Vehicle Rules, or SAFE. Both do much less to reduce emissions than their Obama-era counterparts. And, surprise, surprise, both are being challenged in court. And either of those challenges has a potential to wind up, again, before the highest court in the land. 
you know, the Supreme Court does not hand out cert like candy, but it's entirely reasonable to expect that these issues will come before it for a fifth and potentially final statement in this saga. This is the peril of Plan B, of relying on the Clean Air Act, a law that did not have climate change in mind when it was written as our de facto federal climate policy. I I guess I think at the end of the day, if one of these regulatory programs that comes up through the Clean Air Act to regulate greenhouse gas emissions gets to the Supreme Court, it really will be, the Supreme Court is everything on this question. UCLA's Ann Carlson again, author of Lessons from the Clean Air Act. So when we're thinking about whether the Clean Air Act is a powerful tool, at the end of the day, the ultimate decision about that question is going to reside in the Supreme Court. It could be the end of Plan B. But the end of Plan B means that all that remains is to go back to Plan A, asking Congress to write a new Clean Air Act for the 21st century. One of the things that why I think it's important is right now, if you have the environmental community that believes that they can achieve the emission reductions they need under the current Clean Air Act, there's much less of an incentive for them to push for legislation. Jeff Homestead again from George W. Bush's EPA. There is a group of political scientists out there who have observed that major lasting political changes, the types of laws that aren't overturned the next time someone from the opposite party is elected, tend to be passed by bipartisan coalitions. The Clean Air Act, for instance, was passed 73 to 0 in the Senate in 1970. That was shortly after 10% of the entire United States took to the streets in protest for the first Earth Day. And I I think if EPA, if, if, if those limits are established and it becomes understood that EPA's ability under under the current Clean Air Act is relatively limited, there will likely be much more pressure on on Congress to develop something that actually, um, you know, will be longer lasting and won't change from administration to administration. And I think that's a very important thing. And I think that I think that within the next decade, maybe less, I think there will be some sort of comprehensive climate change legislation. So again, when does a history end? It doesn't. What I would say is the legacy of Massachusetts versus EPA is still being written. And I don't think, I don't think we will know the true legacy for, for years into the future. Outside In was produced this week by me, Sam Evans-Brown, with help from Taylor Quimby, Justine Paradise, Hannah McCarthy, Nick Capodice, and Felix Poon. Erica Janik is our executive producer. Maureen McMurray is the director of creative production jurisprudence. Special thanks to Dina Kruger, Jason Samenow, and Caitlin McCoy. We also produced a print version of this episode, which we published in collaboration with Inside Climate News. Vernon Loeb was the editor of that story. Please do remember Outside In is produced by a local public radio station, one that depends on listener support to keep making stories like this one. You can support the show by visiting outsideinradio.org. While you're there, get in touch. Tell us what you think of the show. Music in this episode by Blue Dot Sessions. Our theme music was made by Breakmaster Cylinder. Outside In is a production of New Hampshire Public Radio. So that was the podcast Outside In from New Hampshire Public Radio with host Sam Evans-Brown. Hope you enjoyed that episode. And since this episode was recorded... 
a little something has changed. We have a different president. <laughs> right. That's right. Um, this episode refers to Trump a few times. Now, obviously, Joe Biden is president of the United States of America. And what exactly that means in the details, we're not really sure yet. But we know the Biden administration has certainly promised to try to push through some major federal climate policy, get Congress to make that happen, and to step up what the federal agencies are doing. They've shown that through their initial executive orders on climate. So whether or not there will be a point in the future where the authority to regulate greenhouse gases does not hinge on technicalities in the Clean Air Act, which was created in 1970, that <laughs> remains to be seen. We'll all be staying tuned to see how that pans out. All right. So if you enjoyed this episode, definitely check out more episodes of Outside In. Mm-hmm. Um, you can find it on Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And we'll be back next week with a new episode of our podcast, How to Save a Planet. Thanks so much, everyone. See you next week.